Our sermon texts for this evening, our beginning point, as it were, is in Hebrews chapter 4. And I'll ask you if you would join me there, Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 4 and read to verse 13. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh, how I love your law. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, join me as we, as we go in, to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we come before you now for uh, the work of illumination. We, we confess to you freely, O oh Lord, um, as we talked about this morning, that uh, we, cannot, we cannot know you by nature apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. We, we are a blind people and we are slow oftentimes to learn the things of Scripture. And, and even when we learn them, O oh Lord, sometimes we are very slow to embrace them and apply them to our lives. So we need your grace. Father, we need the grace, gracious work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask for it now. We ask that you would convict us of sin and that you would move us uh, to understand you better, and that in understanding you better, we would trust you more. In trusting you more, our love to you would (coughs) would be inflamed more and more to the point, oh Father, that we would stand boldly in this culture, and not be tempted to turn aside. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it has to be one of the, as soon as we, I think as soon as we learn how to think for ourselves and we begin to formulate thoughts about our future, uh, one of the deep desires I think that we have is to know the future. And, And every year, untold sums of money are spent on obtaining things like psychic readings. Perhaps some of you uh, have been watching television later than you should have, and Miss Chloe used to come on TV. Does anybody remember Miss Chloe that used to come on? The, uh, the, uh, uh, the lady who had the 1-800 number or the 900 number for you to call and get your psychic reading. She's very popular. I think did very well for herself. Uh, but we invest in things like uh, Ouija boards, Remember that there was for a long time there was a very popular there was a very popular show on television that came on during the daytime where there was a man who could help you get in touch with your dead relatives, uh, breaking through. And the whole objective of, of those things was one to gain some peace of mind, but also to see if you might be able to gain some inkling into what the future held for you. And so I think by nature, um, we we some of us. Ecclesiastes says that we have eternity set upon our hearts. It, it is literally set within our hearts. We, 
We have an innate understanding that, we, that eternity is real. We will live forever. All men will. Um, we know that, but I think that because we also know that we are sinful innately, there's perhaps a sense of dread that comes upon us, and so we want to know what the future holds. Don't, don't you? I mean, wouldn't you, you? We think we would like to know what, what is the United States of America going to look like next year? Um, will, will the dollar be worth anything anymore? Will my investments be worth anything? Uh, should I buy gold? Um, <clears throat> we want to know the future. And so tonight, as we turn our attention back to the uh, confession of faith, we start to think about God's relationship to time, as it were, and God's understanding of time. And we know that because, because time is created by God, he doesn't exist within it. He isn't encumbered by time. He doesn't age. He stands outside of time, watching over it. And so there is a sense in which he exists in all times, at all times. And so the confession teaches us tonight, as we're looking at just a couple of sentences here, about God's, about God's wisdom. The confession teaches us that in his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. I think that if we all sat in a room and talked about our understanding of, of what God knows and how God knows things each and every one of us would probably find some area where we fall a little bit short of the biblical definition of what God knows and how God knows it. And I think as we look at this tonight, it's, there's a little bit of this that's, I think, a little bit terrifying when we think of what God sees and what God knows. And so the first thing that we notice, the first point that we'll make tonight is that God sees all. I think this is probably one of the when you think of the, when you began to understand who God is and you were going through your Sunday school class as a child, this is probably one of the first lessons that your parents taught you. And the whole point was to manipulate you into being a good boy or a good girl. They wanted you to know God sees you. When you go to the movie theater, remember that God sees what you see. He's watching you. He is there. Even when you think that your mother and your father don't see, God sees. And this is an important point and an aspect of accountability. And this is what uh, the confession of faith affirms for us as well. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. And so as we imagine God in his existence, <clears throat> as it were, using human terms, remember God doesn't have eyes, but the scriptures use these terms for him so that you can somehow understand. Remember, we are the finite, trying to grasp the infinite. And as we do that, it uses terminology like the eyes of God see you. And so as we, as we sort of imagine God looking down upon his creation of observing what is going on, we see that all things are open and manifest before him. Look again with me at Hebrews chapter 4. <coughs> And we're focusing our attention especially on verse 13. So let's read that together. <clears throat> and no creature 
is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of God um, to whom we must give an account. Now, thinking about this, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is, is, is um, discussing the believer's responsibility to enter God's rest. And so there's a lot of discussion about verse 9 because he uses a very interesting word there for Sabbath rest. But contextually, what he's talking about is Israel's failure to enter God's rest. Thank you, Dr. Brock. Somebody sympathetic. <laughs> Allergy season, I guess, but uh, it's gotten the better of me tonight. I, don't, I couldn't hit those high notes this evening. Maybe you were thankful for that. <laughs> um, but contextually, so in Hebrews chapter 4, he's writing about the believer's responsibility to enter God's rest. And, and so we might compare that to the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come unto me. All ye who are heavy, weary and heavy laden. But, but Israel failed to enter the Lord's rest. And, and so he's saying, look, there remains a rest. Things have not been finalized. And he says, look, even though um, <coughs> under Joshua they came into the land, they inherited the fullness of the land, and in a sense they had everything that God had promised them, the scriptures say, there was still a rest that remained. And he defines that, that disobedience of Israel as a failure to hear God's word and respond in faith. Notice what he says there in verse 2. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This relates to what we talked about this morning. And he comes back to that in verse 12 where he says, For the word of God that they failed to listen to is living and active. So it's not a failure of God's word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then he comes into this, the conclusion here, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, so he's bringing this to a close, saying, look, you are accountable to apply the rest that Christ accomplished to you. you. You must apply that by trusting in him, by resting in him. And here's the concluding remark. And remember that he will hold you accountable. And he uses two terms there that make, may make you very uncomfortable. He says that you are naked and exposed. Now, I don't know of any nightmares worse than the one where you are in school in nothing but your underwear. That's one of the worst uh, dreams that you can have. Uh, one of the most embarrassing ones. But here we find that, that the writer to the Hebrews, he's chosen these two terms, the ones that make you feel the most vulnerable, perhaps. To say, look, you are naked and exposed. And I'll just point out a couple things there. One, one is passive and one is active. On the one hand, you are naked. 
<coughs> we, this is the same term that we see used of Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember at the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. And so in a sense, in the garden, they were totally exposed to God. They knew of his overriding side of them. They knew he saw everything that they did or thought or wanted, and there was no shame. But after the fall, in the very next chapter, it says, and suddenly they were naked and they knew it, and they were ashamed before the Lord. Why? Because their constitution changed. They were no longer holy and righteous before him. And so the writer to the Hebrews is pointing this out. God sees. You are naked. And what we try to do when we think about this, I think, is we try to clothe ourselves just like Adam and Eve. You think about getting ready to go out on a Friday night for a date. And you try to put your best your best garment on, you paint your face, you comb your hair, you put on your cologne and your deodorant, you double up just for good measure because you want to present a good external appearance to the Lord. But what we remember ultimately is that God doesn't look on the outer man. We cannot clothe ourselves. No matter how we try to present ourselves as righteous people on Facebook, God sees the desires of the heart. You are naked before him. And there's not just the passive element of by nature you can't do anything about this, but there's an active element as well. The scripture says that you are laid bare. It's an interesting term because it's used um, in the same sense that you might, literally, in the scripture, that you might take someone by the head and stretch their neck back, so to stretch their head back to expose the neck so that you could cut it. So it's laying it bare, uh, um, pulling back the chin so that the skin is, is available there. And this is the way that you are to God. And, and I think the objective of the writer to the Hebrews is this, that, that he's saying you, you, you can make efforts to hide from the Lord, but you will never be able to do it. And I think the, the intent here may be to apply something of an aggressive tone to note that no matter how you try to cover yourself up, if you are not trusting in Christ, there is no other covering. And I want you to look with me. Just turn, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 23. This verse occurred to me this evening. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 to 25. God is, is there reasoning with some of the false teachers of Israel? He says this to them through the prophet. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Do you see what the the Lord is saying? He's seeing into the, the hearts of these men who think they're reasoning in their minds, we can hide from the Lord. 
He won't know. He won't see. God says, far be it. I have heard what the prophets have said, in fact. For I am the God who is near. And this was the psalmist's meditation. I'll read to you from Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. He acknowledges that this is an aspect of God's nature. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day, for darkness is as light with you. And and I'll just give you a couple of ways to apply this understanding that God sees all things. Well, one, I think it is, this is one of the basic doctrines that we teach our children and grandchildren about the Lord. And, And we teach it to them in two respects. And the first respect is exactly how the writer to the Hebrews applied it. Uh, You can't hide from the Lord. He sees all things. Adam tried to hide from the Lord. He tried to make for himself uh, clothing out of leaves, uh, fig leaves, for himself and his wife. And, And though we may not try to do that, we might not try to go say to ourselves, well, I'll go into the closet and God won't see what I'm doing there. Sometimes we do try to convince ourselves that God doesn't know about our sins. Surely, He doesn't know about that. I think it's our greatest folly to think or to believe that we will not be held accountable if we can hide ourselves from God. If I can can go to this particular place, God is not there. But I think this also not only reminds us of the accountability of God, that it it goes all the way into the heart. It also gives you confidence. And I think it gives you confidence in this way. I want you to hear this. That when God gave his son to die for your sins, it wasn't just the external behaviors that he had in mind the little peccadilloes. He died for the sins of commission and for the sins of omission, the things that you do and the things that you left undone. Christ died for the deeds that you've done, but listen, Christ also died and paid the penalty for the deeds that you never did, but you thought about doing. He died for those sins as well. Christ died for the wretched thoughts that you have had that only you know about. Now, there are things that you've considered, meditations of your heart that you've never divulged to anyone in your life. God sees it. He knows it. And Christ died for those sins as well. He died for the wicked desires that lie so deeply hidden in your heart that even you barely know about. And thankfully, you haven't tapped into them. God sees all things, and this reminds us of our accountability to him, but also of the depth of his forgiveness, the depth of his cleansing. It goes all the way down to the desires of the heart. The second thing that we think about tonight is not only does God see all things, but he knows all things. And I think that 
This is one of the places that we really have to work to reconcile our understanding of God's knowledge with the biblical understanding of God's knowledge. The confession teaches us that his knowledge is infinite. And in fact, this is taken directly from the scriptures in Psalm 147, verse 5, where the psalmist wrote there, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is, and there the translation of the Hebrew is beyond measure, but Here the psalmist is referring to God's understanding, God seeing the world and his understanding of the world. Now, for you and me, that's a a different proposition because I might might see something. I might observe a wreck happen or a police officer pull someone over and I can tell you what happened, but I might not fully understand all of the facts of how it came to pass and who was at fault and these types of things. But God does. His knowledge is as infinite as his being. We might translate this passage that his intellect or his knowledge is infinite. In other words, it doesn't have any boundary. Now, this makes sense now. How can God see all things? Well, he cannot be kept out. His being is infinite. And so his knowledge is infinite. He sees all things. Just as his being is eternal, so his knowledge is eternal. Just as he exists in all times, at all times, he fully understands everything that will come to pass. We also learn that his knowledge is infallible. His knowledge is infallible. (coughs) This means that God understands all things exactly as they are. For you and me, there's a proverb that teaches us that it is a folly of a man to understand, to to take the word of a first report. In other words, somebody comes to you and they say, well, this is what happened and, and this is why. And I find my heart is inclined to say, well, I believe you and now I'm just as mad as that guy at that guy as you are. And then you go and you talk to the other guy and you're like, oh, well, okay, there's more to the story here. And so you see, in that moment between talking to the first man and the second man, there's a, there's a, there's a falsehood in your understanding. And you're making a false judgment. You're drawing a false conclusion. But there is none of that in God. His knowledge is infallible. He sees all things as they are. We, and, and we think, well, maybe if I can't, Maybe if I can't hide from God, maybe I'll be able to trick him into believing something. No. God cannot be deceived. And then lastly, his knowledge is independent. His knowledge is independent. What does that mean? Well, some some conceive of the knowledge of God in this way that he, he knows things he sort of foresees them. He's like Miss Chloe. He used to come on the TV and he can, he can predict the future. He sees what's going to happen and therefore he knows it. And that's the idea that we, we come away with. But the confession reminds us that God's knowledge is independent of the creature. He knows all things that will come to pass because he has determined them. In other words, He knows it because he is completely dependent upon himself to know it. And you can't change the future, in a sense. 
You cannot change his decree. It is a changeless decree as we worship him for and trust him for. His knowledge is independent of the creature. He is not, in other words, God is not learning things. That's an important truth. He doesn't learn things. He's not watching events transpire and figuring things out the way that you and I are or even the way that the devil is or his holy angels. He foresees all things because he has determined them exactly as they will fall out. So that we go on and we learn that to him nothing is contingent and nothing is uncertain. Nothing is contingent and nothing is certain. Turn over with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 15. This is the chapter on the uh, Jerusalem Council. And remember that in this chapter they are, there's a great debate over whether Gentile believers need to be circumcised in addition to their baptism as they enter into the church. In other words, do they need to continue observing the old covenant uh, requirement of, of circumcision um, or, or are they free with that? And there was disagreement in the church over it. And so there's a great debate amongst the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, and they finally came to a decision. They heard from the apostles, they heard testimony, and then finally they appealed to Scripture. And in Acts chapter 13, verses 15 to 17, we read their appeal to Scripture, and this is what it it says. Pick up with me in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. In other words, Gentiles are included in the promises of God. They are a people for God's name, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Who makes these things known from of old. So what they're doing is they're appealing to the prophets and they're saying, look, in fact, here's the thing. God has actually declared that he will bring the Gentiles in and include them among his people And it hasn't been a secret. We just failed to recognize it. And so in verses 16 to 17, they sort of piece together several Old Testament prophetic quotations. And what's interesting is verse 18 stands by itself. They pulled it out and appended it there. Um, That these things had been made uh, known by God. And they draw this from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. And what God declares in Isaiah 45 is that he's not like a man. How do we know that he's not like a man? Because he declares things that will happen before they happen. And so the only way that he can make that determination or that declaration is if he has determined what will come to pass. And one of the examples I I like to use is, imagine if on Passover Friday, 
all the people are together, and there's Jesus, <clears throat> and they're all ready to crucify him. And there's a massive thunderstorm, and it's a torrential rain. And so all of the, the Roman soldiers have to put away their, cruci their, uh, their crosses, and they can't crucify anybody that day. But this is, the, this is how refined God's providence is that he can declare when he will do something and he controls all of the elements leading up to and including that event. That's why he can declare the end from the beginning and the points that the apostles make. Seems to be that God had determined to include the Gentiles from the beginning. The failure to understand was on man's part, not God's. And it was always his plan to include the Gentiles. So in a sense, what they're saying in this passage is, that's our bad. We messed up. We didn't understand that. And now we do. And Christ has declared it to us. We should have seen it, and we didn't. Nothing is contingent. God has declared all things, and then finally, nothing is uncertain. Ezekiel was the prophet. <clears throat> who prophesied while he was in exile. And in fact, when we pick up in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, there he is by the, the Kabar River. And he's talking about, he's declaring what's going to happen to the southern kingdom. And before the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians, there were some of the kings, some of the princes, as it were, the leaders of the people, they had gathered together, and they, sort of, they sort of recognized, you know what, this thing's over. The battle's done. It's over. There's nothing we can do about it. And so as we pick up in, in Ezekiel chapter 11, notice what happens. The spirit, Ezekiel says, this is verse 1, lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, and, and the presence of the Lord has already departed from the temple, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, and now that Jehovah is quoting them, the time is not near to build houses. In other words, don't build houses. Time's over. It's all, It's over. Babylonians are on the border. Our fate is sealed. And they go on to say, this city is a cauldron and we are the meat. In other words, we're the sacrifice. It's all, it's done. Fate is sealed. And God says to him, then, therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So the leaders of Israel believed that their, their planning was in secret, one, in essence, they had given up on defending the people of God and just resigned themselves to failure. And, and, and most importantly, they had resigned themselves not even to seek Jehovah's help. And so we notice what happens. Well, in verse 7, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat. And the city is the cauldron, as you said. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you not in the city, but at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. In the end, God permitted the city, the people to die in the city, but he brought the leaders out to die on the borders of the city just to demonstrate the folly of their own plans, that they failed to turn to him and to seek his aid. Nothing is uncertain with the Lord. What he decrees to do, he will do. And I'll give you just a couple of applications here. One, when we think about these as the attributes of God, it demonstrates the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in places like Mark, chapter 2, remember when they, they lowered the paralytic down through the roof, there's an interesting scene there where it says that Jesus saw their faith. In other words, it's as though he could look at their hearts and see what was deep down in them. He understood what was going on. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 8, when the Pharisees are challenging them, it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Jesus perceived what they were thinking in their hearts. And so as we, um, the gospel writers bring these things to bear for us so that at times we see his, the limitations of his humanity, at other times we see the the. Uh, the unlimited ability of his divinity so that he could see their hearts. In his humanity, Jesus grew in wisdom. He learned facts, uh, just as you and I do. But in his divinity, Jesus was infinite in knowledge and understanding. And just a last application here, and, and hopefully a comfort. God knows the plans of the wicked. This is one of the things that the psalmist comes back to repeatedly over and over and over. God knows the plans of the wicked. They aren't hidden from him. You can go into the deepest NATO bunker, but God sees and knows all that occurs there. You can try to transmit in secret code, but God knows it all. He sees it all. You and I, we are surprised by the wickedness that is in the world, but God is not. These things are not unfolding for him the way that they do for you and me. He, he knows because he has determined the outcome of the war between Russia and Ukraine. And he is using all of these things to meet one important end. Do you know what it is? The expansion of Christ's kingdom and the good of his people. God is never surprised. In fact, Scripture teaches us that every step the wicked take only fulfills the purposes of the Lord. And therefore, His promises to do good to His people will never fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are the God who sees all and You know all. That, Lord, You know us infinitely well. You know the thoughts that are on our hearts right now. And even though this is a terrifying thing for us to think about, that you know our thoughts, at the same time we are comforted in knowing that when Christ went to the cross, our present thoughts, our past thoughts, our future thoughts, our past desires, our present desires, and our future desires, all were carried to the cross of Jesus Christ, and he paid for it all there. And so, Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters tonight that you would fill us with the confidence 
as we come before you and we confess faith, we're not making you known of, uh, about things that we've done. We're not bringing them to light. There will never be a moment where you say, well, I didn't know about that. And so, Father, our confession of sin is an act of worship. It is a confession that you know what we've done. And even, Father, you know the sins that we don't know that we've committed. And so we thank you that we can come to you in confidence through Jesus Christ that he has paid for it all. And help us, Father, to live. To, um, it is your right to, to, for men to fear you. And so I ask that you would give us a holy and a reverent fear of who you are, that you see all. Nothing can be hidden from you. But you've made an act of choice to hide from your eyes the sins of all of your people so that we have a great confidence in our standing before you, Lord, even though we are naked and laid bare, naked and laid bare before you. Lord, we are naked and laid bare in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen.